Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's World MasterCard, the sweetest reward card there is. Couldn't resist. Church with commercials. How else could you begin a new message series with the title, Why the Devil Takes MasterCard? Jesus on money, debt, and your stuff. Go ahead, Carol. The timing of this um, is appropriate right in the wake of Christmas. Uh, just as the, all the new bills are kind of hitting, I actually had a, had a good Christmas stuff-wise. Uh, I got a few things I needed, some I wanted, and some I, I didn't want. How did you do with that? Did you purchase primarily needs, or did you indulge and buy some wants? Let me show you some of my, uh, my featured treasures from this Christmas. I will begin with something I did not want. Behold... The pair of slippers I got from my wife's little sisters. Now, I, I actually appreciated the thought. I had complained to Colleen at some point that I have cold feet in the morning, and she must have passed it on to them. They're only like 10, 11 years old. What do they know? It's not that I'm, I'm against, like, you know, oversized slippers, though these are very large <laughs> and very white. But I found their bonus feature a little bit much. See, these aren't ordinary slippers. Oh, no. See, my sister-in-laws care too much about my pampering to do that. These are massaging slippers. And on the box, they were packaged in, they were advertised, let our slippers massage your soul. S-O-L-E. It raised my eyebrows, but I played along. I put them on, put the batteries in, flipped on the switch, and... Everyone quiet now, listen. I put these on Christmas morning... And I looked at Colleen's sister and said, thank you, how relaxing. (laughs) Very therapeutic. You know how these sound on hardwood floors? It's like our dog was so scared he ran out of the room, more junk from my closet. But uh, I did not need those, I did not want those. Now the gift from my wife, though, was another story. It was something I wanted. In fact, wanted is a polite word. That is, since, since this is a church, I'm the pastor, I should be more, you know, transparent. Coveted is probably more in the realm of linguistic honesty. <laughs> Behold, get ready for the oohs and the ahs. Behold, the video iPod. It is beautiful, elegant, isn't it? It is my precious. <laughs> no, and besides, it was something I needed. I'm serious. I'm serious. Let me, let me show you. Since we're talking candidly about our stuff, let me show you my prized possessions. See, I had actually been saddled with, long before that, um, an ordinary iPod prior to, to this one. It had no video. You can only listen. Nothing to watch. Can you believe that? They made these things. <laughs> Worse yet, prior to that, I had the Mini, which is Mini. Can't hold all my music at one time. It doesn't all fit. It's, it's mini. It's too small. And it's pink. All right, it's Colleen's. I stole it. But I had to upgrade. And, and the mini, as you know, was a much-needed improvement on my original iPod. Purchased way back, I gosh, I don't know, what, you know, like four years ago. And look how clunky, you know, this one is. almost as like thick as a deck of cards. And you know what? I said to Colleen, I'm simplifying I am scaling down this year. I'm going to downsize just audio and video all in one sleek, bad runner that fits in the shirt of my pocket. Video iPod. Now I've got music and TV shows. I can take them with me. Of course, what do I do with these other three? Um, You know, well, there's always eBay, I guess, right? Where you can actually get some great deals on iPod accessories. Well, all kidding aside, I I have some issues, don't I? (laughs) Uh, those of you who remember a prior message series called McWorld, Bigger, Better, Faster, More, already know my secret sin, Technolust. <laughs> there is not a gadget, especially cool, sleek Apple ones, 
that comes along that I don't fundamentally believe I need to improve my life. And, and this will be the one that finally does it. Helps me get it all together, you know. But as I was looking like through my drawer full of obsolete gear this week, I actually a sad feeling kind of came over me. Seriously, I did open this generous gift for my wife, but thank you for feeding my addiction, sweet. We're in it together. It's like the woman gives him the apple, he's like, oh, we're blind together. I knew it would bring me temporary delight. It's cool. I enjoy technology. But I also had the sense when I opened it, I was like, I've, I've been here before. You know, opening something new, unwrapping it, and knowing that in just a few months, I'm going to be back in the same place again. I know this will be obsolete, probably more quickly than three months, more like three weeks. And I'll need, I'll need another one to stay current, to keep up. I'm getting the sense, actually, like it's kind of a, a treadmill. Like I'm being played at some level by the people who invent and market these things. The problem is I don't want to stop playing. <laughs> most of us here grew up in America over the past few decades, came of age in one of the most affluent, voracious consumer cultures that civilization has ever known. We are Americans, most of us. And Westerners are many things, patriotic, resilient, self-reliant, and wildly materialistic. We shop till we drop, till our feet ache. Then we buy a pair of massaging slippers and pay, you know, shop some more. But for too many of us, it's like our appetite for consumption is never satisfied until we get the next thing. What's your next thing? Don't sit there in judgment of me. <laughs> What's it for you? A new outfit, purse, a handbag, furniture for your condo or apartment? Sporting gear, adventure equipment, what are you hoping to upgrade this year? Your home, your computer, your car, your wardrobe. We are born and bred in one of the most powerful consumer cultures in history, and it's little wonder why so many of us are strapped financially, burdened by debt, and really hollowed out spiritually like never before. Buried alive, that's how some of us live. What would we see if we got to look inside your bedroom, your closet? What's stashed in your drawers, piled in your closets, crammed in your attic or garage? <laughs> Money, debt, and your stuff. It's a touchy topic, I'll admit. <laughs> I'm more, boy, I'm, I'm like, Phew, pornography seems easy compared to this one. But it's a crucial one if we're to believe Jesus, who considered it so vital to one's spiritual health that he addressed the topic all the time in Scripture. Did you know a full 15% of everything Christ said relates to the topic of money and our possessions? That's more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. And so I thought we'd begin this series tonight very simply with actually a story that Jesus told about a pretty upscale and affluent man, a guy who had a lot and hoarded more. It's found in Luke chapter 12. You can grab a pew Bible there in the center there. And it's called the parable... Of the rich fool. Luke chapter 12, and again, there's so much here in Scripture for us to choose from. But I want to start here because you'll see kind of systematically how we're going to work through this topic. This is underneath the parable of the rich fool. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's actually growing quite popular. <laughs> so he, he decides to talk about money, which I guess means, you know, move the crowds away. <laughs> But if you turn to Luke 12, it says, verse 1 says, Luke, he says, a crowd of many thousands had gathered, and they were so excited to hear and see Jesus that they were, quote, trampling on one another, okay? So they're just like kind of thronging Jesus. They want to hear the message that this man is carrying, and, and this is a new teaching. And in verse 13, where this account picks up, someone in the crowd yells to Jesus, are you there? Verse 13, teacher. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is a popular topic in ancient Israel, okay? Rabbis of that day often served as like mediators for any disputes people had, particularly those that involved interpretation of Old Testament laws about money. And what's interesting is that Jesus' response does not actually address the topic of inheritance. Rather, Jesus uses this question from the crowd as a springboard to raise the issue of money, finances, and possessions. In verse 14, Jesus replies, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build 
bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain in my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. This is an interesting story. It's an unsettling one, and it likely would have shaken up the crowd that was pressing in to hear Jesus. And I want you to keep in mind that the crowd of people who were assembled were probably nothing like us. (laughs) They were likely poor. They did not live in the West, but in the ancient Middle East, where the majority of folks lived in poverty. They owned little, barely scraped by. And yet Jesus decides to challenge them with a story about a rich man. (laughs) And that's actually instructive for us because I realize with a crowd actually this size, we likely have folks from all points along the economic spectrum. Because I get to hang out with with a wide swath of you folks, I I personally know some of you who don't have a job or are hurting financially. And then I sit with others of you who are actually candidly making six digits. (laughs) And things are going along quite well for you. That's actually one of the kind of the fun things about sitting in the darkened pews at a young church like this. You don't know if the guy you're sitting next to is like a penniless grad student or a dot-com, you know, millionaire. Most likely, you're probably like me, somewhere actually in the middle, <laughs> iPods notwithstanding. A, a decent job, ends meet, but you do feel the pull of nice things. There are a few things in your life you actually wouldn't mind upgrading. So like Jesus, we've got a nice mixed group here. And, and Jesus begins his message with this warning, watch out. Be on your guard, meaning something's going to sneak up on you, all against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his stuff. How great was that MasterCard commercial that kind of started us? I'll be the first to admit that their ad campaign, you know, is brilliant. You know, you always see these ads, peanuts, $5, in-flight movie, $15, airfare, $400. The cost of being home on time for your daughter's kindergarten graduation? Oh, priceless. Kind of tugs at the heartstrings, don't it? And in some ways, they're acknowledging one of the aphorisms everyone knows. Money can't buy happiness. The best things in life are free. But it's actually kind of funny because if you notice in the ad that we saw, it shows this man and the woman in the candy store. Only the bins are full of adult candy, right? Digital cameras, laptops, big screen TVs, cruise ships, luxury hotels, exotic vacations. And the ad says... There are some things in life money can't buy. But for everything else, there's MasterCard offering you the sweetest rewards on the planet. And you realize it's an ad for their rewards program. That is, if you buy enough stuff with their credit card, you get more stuff. (laughs) You get it? They're like, we realize money can't buy true happiness. All the stuff you've brought with our card is actually, you know, probably worn out or broken by now. But take heart. Here's a reward. More stuff on the way. Your spending hasn't gone unnoticed. Vacations, trips, cruises, the sweetest rewards on the planet are coming to you through our frequent user program. Now, that's priceless. There's some things money can't buy. All this is advertised without a shred of irony. (laughs) On one level, MasterCard is actually affirming Jesus' opening manifesto. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. True. On another level, they're trumpeting the post-purchase experiences as the real payoff. It's the trips, it's the safaris, the luxury hotel stays that are the source of real meaning and contentment. I put together a little pop quiz tonight for you, just designed to kind of gauge your consumer IQ quotient. And the first question is, I'll ask is actually pretty simple. How much of an average American's lifetime do you think will be spent, on average, watching television commercials? A, six months, B, three months, one year C, or D, 1.5 years? D, C, okay, all right. Answer C, good for you. One, one full year. Watching ads like that one with one goal in mind. To create an insatiable desire for more, for what you don't have. By the way, in contrast, Americans on average spend about 40 minutes a week playing with their kids. And members of working couples talk with one another on average 12 minutes a day. That's another sermon. But the New York Times estimates on average we're exposed to 3,500 ads a day in your lifetime. It will be a full year watching them loot before your eyes, printing on your brain. 
Watch out, Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, it's interesting because Jesus begins his teaching by noting that there are different kinds of greed. He's like, there are variations of covetousness, of materialism and stuff-hungry consumption that's waiting to swallow us up. But tonight, I'd like to focus on one particular strain of greed that's most indigenous to folks like us living in the affluent West in the 21st century. It's the kind of greed known as affluenza. <laughs> if, if there's one disease that we as a people are susceptible to, living where we do in this country, at this particular period in history, it's affluenza. Now, that's actually a word that some sociologists have used to describe what many of us feel day to day, but it also captures the qualities of this man that Jesus highlights here in Luke 12. Affluenza, the bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. (laughs) Or a second definition, an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by the dogged pursuit of the American dream. If we could add one, we'd say it's also a spiritual illness that Jesus counsels his followers to avoid at all costs. What I'd like to do with our text tonight is simple. I want to look at the symptoms of affluenza in the life of this man as Jesus describes it and invite you now to look into God's word reflectively, okay? Like a mirror. See if you don't see in this man some of the qualities or symptoms of affluenza in your own life. Now, the first symptoms that Jesus highlights is actually found in verse 16. Look at it real quick. He says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Symptom number one, you know you might be suffering from a case of affluenza if your existing prosperity is overshadowed by a nagging sense of scarcity. Now, you'd miss this one if you rushed ahead, but Jesus tells us that this guy was already what? Rich, which, as I said, was something of an anomaly in the Middle East. He was wealthy, affluent. He lived in Society Hill, okay? And all this... In the midst of a poverty and famine-stricken country, the median annual income of a Hebrew living in Jerusalem during Jesus' day was extremely low, almost equivalent to a single day's wages by contemporary standards. But this guy was well off. Apparently had a pretty successful farm operation. Maybe his daddy seeded him some money, but he was rich. Likely had servants, luxuries, a chariot with a rear spoiler on the back. Heated saddle for his horse. And what happens, we learn, is that the rich, according to Jesus and his story, get richer. In other words, he's already financially prosperous from previous earnings, and then his ground produces a bumper crop. Now, at this, the peasants in Jesus' audience probably would have been like, oh, groaned. So what's his response? Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. In other words, oh, good, more. I don't have quite enough already. (laughs) In fact, this is just in time because my chariot's in the shop and I need a new team of servants. He's oblivious to the fact that he likely lives in the upper 3% of all his peers who are scraping by for their bread each day. And he assumes that the additional prosperity is, is obviously here to satiate his needs alone. Folks, whether you are new to New Jersey or East Coast living, whether you're a penniless student or a well invested associate partner, one thing is certain. In comparison to the rest of the world around us, we live in Oz. I came across a news report recently that noted New Jersey actually just leapfrogged Connecticut as the most affluent and wealthy state in the U.S. That's per household income. I know some of you are like, whoa, I better move out of here. And what's more, the wealthiest per household counties in New Jersey are Hunterdon, Somerset, and Morris, where I know many of you live. So capture this. Do the math on this. We live in the most financially prosperous region of the most financially prosperous state and the most economically advanced country in the history of civilization. No other previous generations have been exposed to the kind of affluence and luxury that we assume is normative for our neck of the woods. And America is now the unprecedented superpower of the world, the height of its military, technology, and and economic superpowers. We live in Oz. Unreality. Some of you who have gone on missions trip know what I'm talking about. You go to the Short Hills Mall and buy jeans for 50 bucks, you are tasting something 
that 99% of people today, alive today will never know. And I know some of you spend more. <laughs> Something 100% of the entire world population prior to our generation never could have even imagined. And you know what? It makes us yawn. Or worse yet, don't really feel it's enough. Many of us live with a nagging feeling like we're missing out in comparison to others. I hesitate to even bring out my iPods because I know some of you, that's going to be such a distraction. Like, I can't believe that your pastor has four iPods. I don't have an iPod. <laughs> okay, see? <laughs> it happens to all of us. We're ripe for it. My wife and I experienced it this week. She saw it. It just comes naturally to me. Once you start awakening to it, Colin and I went away to a bed and breakfast just for a couple days away from the kids. It was, just a, it was a nice place. It was kind of a Christmas gift. And... Um, it was, it was one of those places that it's like a suite, and it, and it, uh, so you have a bed and a fireplace, and it has a whirlpool in the room, two-person. I know, Joanne's like, go, Tim. Uh, and I, I, begin, I begin getting sad uh, as I think about this, because Colleen was like, was like, cool, okay, pool in your room's kind of weird, but all right, it's not the Poconos, it's not, you know, champagne flute. Uh, we got in, and it sunk in this thing, and I was like, this is nice. After a while, I was like, this is really nice. And the jets were going and everything. I'm like reading the paper. And I'm sitting there and there's a fireplace across the way. And I'm sitting in this tub and there's a TV so you can watch TV. You got the fireplace sitting in a, in a hot tub. And I'm thinking, why, why, don't, why don't I have this? <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm like, would, would this not be nice to have at home? And my mind starts even rationalizing. I'm like, this would like, help relax me as I prepare sermons, I think. And I'm serious, it goes there, it's nuts. Our, I, I like something, I must possess it. Our natural orientation, and we don't even know it, is to be blind to our relative financial prosperity and instead engender this nagging sense of scarcity that's all out of proportion to how we've actually been blessed by God. Back to our pop quiz. Since 1950, Americans alone have used more resources than A, everyone who ever lived before them, B, the combined third world populations, C, the Romans at the height of the Roman Empire, or D, all of the above? D, all of the above. Since 1950, Americans alone have used more resources than everyone who ever lived before them. Each American individual, you and I, uses up to 20 tons of basic raw materials annually. We throw away 7 million cars a year. Two million plastic bottles an hour. And enough aluminum cans annually to make 6,000 DC-10 airplanes. Are we consumers? How about this question? America's total yearly waste would fill a convoy of garbage trucks long enough to A, wrap around the Earth six times, B, reach halfway to the moon, C, connect the North and South Poles, D, build a bridge between North America and China. Anyone? It's actually kind of a trick. Answer, A and B. Even though Americans comprise only 5, we comprise 5% of the world's population. In the mid-90s, we used nearly a third of the entire world's resources and produced almost half of its hazardous waste. The average North American consumes five times as much as the average Mexican, ten times as much as the average Chinese, and 30 times as much as the average person in India. We are voracious consumers. Materially wealthy beyond the wildest dreams of the vast majority of the world's population that lack basic food, water, medical care. And yet we feel often that we're deprived in many ways. That if I just had a little bit more, a bigger house, a higher salary, a nicer car, then I would be okay. That's symptom number one of affluenza. Your existing prosperity is overshadowed by a nagging sense of scarcity. And it's funny, I thought about that and I'm like, where does this come from? Because it's interesting, this, this actually traces back all the way to the origins of man. This is not unique to Western Civ, <laughs> okay? I want you to think back to the opening of Scripture in Genesis 2. In the Garden of Eden, God plants man and woman in the midst of this lush, pristine garden paradise. And he actually commands them. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the entire garden. Anything. But you must not eat from one tree. One tree. <laughs> The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. There are health implications here. Get this. God gives Adam and Eve the menu. <laughs> the most radically generous and abundant gift imaginable. All creation, it's yours. Eat till you're filled. 
Be consumers. Consume heartily from the abundance before you. Anything you put your eyes on, you can have. It's yours. Just don't eat from one tree. That one over there, it's deadly. It'll kill you. Enjoy, my children. Next scene. The serpent slithers up, and what's the first thing he does? He plants in Adam and Eve a sense of scarcity in the midst of this hyperabundance. In Genesis 3, he comes up and he says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is he really that stingy? Pity for you. That dad's tight. You guys are missing out. Do you see the trick? All the way back at the creation of man. The devil's trick is to get us to overlook our incredible state of blessedness and focus instead on the one thing we don't have. It's amazing. Mark Buchanan is the author of a great piece that unmasked the ruse of consumerism called Trapped in the Cult of the Next Thing. And he writes, The serpent's trick, then as now, is to turn the staggering abundance, go ahead, Carol, and gracious protection into frightening scarcity and bullying deprivation, the stinginess of a despot. The serpent lied and we got taken in. Now, despite the overwhelming evidence that we live amidst overflowing abundance, abundance, food, clothes, warmth, friends, things, we always feel it's not enough. We sense it's running out. It's insufficient. We live for the next thing. Are you a member of the cult of the next thing? (laughs) I'm a charter member. (laughs) I confess to my shame. Many of us are. And it's the first symptom of affluenza that Jesus reveals to us in this parable. The second is related. Look at verse 17, would you? This man who's already rich, he's blessed materially in relative comparison to everyone else in the world around him. He's blessed again. His fields yield another prosperous crop. And what's the question on his mind? I love this. He thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Affluenza symptom number two. When blessed with material prosperity, it doesn't even occur to us that it might be for the benefit of others. Like maybe God gave this to you to actually share with others. By default, we assume any little bit of extra in our life (laughs) is naturally intended for me to consume, spend, or hoard. The focus is squarely on ourselves, our own world, our own needs. I want you to imagine, watch, I want you to imagine you walk into work tomorrow morning and your boss calls you into his office. He's got some Monday morning news for you. You brace yourself, you know, you like prepare for the worst, but it's actually just the opposite. I want you to imagine that tomorrow you're told that you're getting a bonus check. You're getting a bonus. I don't know how we overlooked this. A check for $1,000 you didn't know you had coming. Now, I want you to scale that to whatever your pay grade is, okay? If you're like working Starbucks, imagine your manager calls you in and hands over you a check for 100 bucks. Just a bonus out of nowhere. If you walk on, work on Wall Street, maybe you're in banking, corporate investment. Imagine your superior tells you, you get a $10,000 bonus this month. I don't... Here it is. What immediately comes to your mind? What would you do with an extra... Eh? Be honest. Tell me your mind right now doesn't immediately turn to what you're going to buy. Or improve in your life. Now, this isn't all bad, okay, folks? It's perfectly natural, actually, to think of feathering one's own nest. <laughs> if you have a family, many of us have responsibilities. Of course, your thoughts will immediately turn to those. But what are they? With 100 bucks, what would you do? Would you, would you upgrade your iPod? How about 1000 bucks? Would you pay off some credit card debt or take a vacation? How about 10000 Would you begin planning the, the, the blueprints for the addition to your house? Finally going to remodel the basement? There's no shame in this. But if you're like me, an average American who grew up in a modern consumer culture, when you're blessed financially, by default, we assume it's naturally intended for us to consume or to hoard. (laughs) Saving? You know, that's not in many of our vocabularies. Here's a pop quiz. The average American saves what part of his annual income? 4%. Oh, don't be so pessimistic. Now, compare that to an average citizen in China who saves 16%. Still not the point. The guy in Jesus' parable is into saving, though an argument can be made for hoarding. Jesus is like, this is about sharing. Because for most of us, when faced with financial prosperity, it doesn't even occur to us to share. That God might actually explicitly have decided to give us something so that we can then pass it along to meet the needs of other people who don't have. 
This is what we're going to discover Jesus is going to be trying to awaken us to through this series. That when we come into the wealth of any kind, we often think, this is a blessing from God. And yes, that's true. But it would be just as scriptural to think, this is a test from God. He wants to see if I'll be a good steward of his resources. If I can be trusted with his money. If I'll pass along his generosity to those truly in need. We're going to be getting into the issue of stewardship in the series. But Jesus is raising it with this man in his parable. When God gives the affluent man more money than he needs, it's not so that we can find more ways to spend it, indulge ourselves, or insulate ourselves from ever needing God's provision. Save it all up, because if the stock market crashes, there's nowhere in the Bible that suggests this. It's so we can give. We're never more like God than when we're giving. I know this is going to sound alien to many of us, because affluenza has affected our thinking like a low-grade fever for the mind. But my biggest fear, actually, quite honestly, at this point, is that some of you are kind of like checking out. (laughs) Because you're thinking, well, this is about rich people. I'm not one of them. I'm the one in need, so preach it, Tim. (laughs) Some of you, yeah. Perhaps you are broke. You're struggling along. But God is still interested in your heart and your wallet. What you do with the cash that flows through your fingers is a great indicator of where your heart is. You may think, I've got no money to give away. I live hand to mouth, perhaps. But what 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 do you listen to in your car today? The new Coldplay CD? Oh, so you do have disposable income? Ah, you have just a smaller amount in proportion to others. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Buchanan tells a story, actually, of an elderly woman in his congregation. He's up in Canada named Helen. Uh, Helen was older, and she's a survivor of the Holocaust, actually. And her parents died in a crammed cattle car in Eastern Europe. She survived, spent years digging you know, ditches in a freezing concentration camp. And after liberation, she moved to Canada and married. But actually, her husband died early and left her only a small, tiny little pension. So capture this. Holocaust survivor, widow, sufferer of abuse, most of us will never know anything about. And Buchanan says, Helen, this woman in my congregation has every reason to hoard, to be self-absorbed and stingy. And yet, he writes, one day in church as I led prayer, I asked if there was anyone here who wanted to thank God for anything. Helen stood up. Oh, Pastor Mark, she said, I praise God. Well, tell us about it, uh, Helen. Well, the other day, it was such a beautiful day, I decided to wash my car, and as I'm washing, what do I notice? My insurance expired three days earlier. Well, right away, I walked downtown and bought new insurance, and then I'm telling a friend of mine about it, and she said, you're lucky, Helen, that happened to me, and the police stopped me. I was fined $300. Buchanan said, I I thought that was the end of the story. You know, praising God, the police didn't catch her. (laughs) But it wasn't the end of the story. Helen says, God has given me $300. That's how I see it. The Lord has done this. So I said to him, Lord, what am I to do with this $300 I found? And he said, give it to the church. So today I have $300 to give the church, and that's why I'm praising God. That was the response of the congregation. (laughs) Buchanan writes, silence. Like, oh, she has Alzheimer's now. Oh. People don't think like this when they're in the grips of affluenza. Folks, what we're going to learn and what I hope this series is going to help us see is what Jesus is alluding to in the parable of the rich fool. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving to others. It's his foremost means of spiritual transformation, molding us into his likeness. We're never more like God when we're giving and sacrificing what's precious to us for another's benefit. But those caught in the grips of affluenza don't see that. It doesn't occur to them. It doesn't occur to us to share. And that's why Jesus calls the man a fool. You see it in verse 21. He says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Now, let me be honest. I really identify with this guy in Jesus' story, (laughs) especially his reasoning in verse 18. Look at this. Because not only does this guy ignore the needs of those around him, not only does he assume that his profits are to be kept for himself, But he comes up with an ingenious plan to be a good steward of his windfall. I love this. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. Symptom number three of affluenza. We invest our time, energies, and efforts to making room for more stuff. 
Every, our time and energies begin being more and more channeled into taking care of and protecting our possessions and our wealth. I saw this dramatically illustrated in a recent trip Kali and I made to Target. Yeah, we're real fancy, right? For iPods, we, start, we shop at Target. That's probably why we, shop, we stop at, shop at Target. Waste all on technology. Um, all the Christmas stuff was out of the store. This was like, you know, a week ago. But what was in? Rows and rows of Rubbermaid containers. It was unbelievable. Boxes of every unimaginable size, shape, and storage dominated the front rows of the stores. You could, so you could fit stuff under your bed. They're like, if you only have a bed, you can fit under the bed. You, how many of those? The plastic ones under your bed, right? You could fit the, hang them in your attic. There was a container for everything. How many of you actually own something like this, okay? Yeah, okay, good, I know, welcome. Uh, Matt Wiley and I were talking, and he told me, he's like, Tim, Rad's a consultant, he's like, Rubbermaid wins the award for the most innovative American product last year. And I was like, surprised, I was like, the iPod? And he's like, he's like, don't you see? He goes, they've gone from producing lunch boxes to the stuff storage management industry. They make it possible to buy more and more and avoid feeling buried alive. Because you can keep buying more and more, but keep track of it with a nice little lid. Have you seen the new Ziploc bags? Remember Ziploc bag? When I was in school, you put a salami sandwich in a Ziploc bag. No more. You've seen the Ziploc bag. All right, I'll bring one in next week. They're actually the size of like a garbage bag. And it's just, it's just, like, it's just like giant stuff. It's like, it's like, honey, I shrunk the kids. There's this huge Ziploc bag. You put your stuff in and zip it over. What do you have more of, almost more than malls in New Jersey? You store it. <laughs> Self-storage. These seem to be sprouting up everywhere. Off-site parking for your stuff. Just another sign of the times. I love this guy in Jesus' parable because he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. He's an American. You get this? (laughs) He has a three-car garage. (laughs) You notice, by the way, that none of us use our garages for our cars anymore, right? It's all storage. Our whole garage is inundated with stuff. Lawnmowers, kids' bikes, sleds, grills, lawn furniture. There's no room for a car. How many of you use your garage for storage? Be honest. Yeah, okay. I know, I know. There are a couple of like, better people actually like, I don't even have a garage. You're still like hung up on the iPod. All right. Don't... Don't be like, hey, Tim, I'm poor. I was visiting with a buddy of mine who lives in a one-room studio apartment, and you know what's in his cupboard? I go in there, get a glass, a drink of water, and like the Bon Jovi box set comes pouring out. CDs. He keeps all of his CDs put in there, and he's like, I'd rather have, I guess, Bon Jovi than drink, right? You know? It's like, we don't really notice this. It's just assumed as natural, but it's not. That pastor I told you about, Mark Buchanan, he remembers when they hosted a woman from Bangladesh in their church. She lived, went to live, you know, for like a month with a family in Toronto. In the morning after she arrived, she looked out the kitchen window of their home, and she said to them, who, who, who lives in that house? She asked her North American host, and, and they were like, which house? That one right there. They're like, oh, oh, no, no, no one lives in there. That, that's, a ha- um, that's a house for the car. She said, the woman from Bangladesh was like shocked, struggling to make sense of it, and she just kept saying, A house for the car. A house for the car. To most of the world, we live in staggering staggering lavishness. And we spend tremendous time and energy making room for our stuff. Stuff that's extravagant to the rest of the world, but normative to us. And when we find ourselves crowded in by it, accumulating, it doesn't occur to us that maybe we have too much. (laughs) No, we need more space. (laughs) This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Renovate. Expand. I don't want to fixate on garages, but some friends of ours who live out of state are moving into one of those, like, you know, McMansions, and and he's showing me the plans for his three-car garage, and he doesn't have three cars, but it's all for their stuff, which won't fit, you know, in the main house. Now, let's see if you know this. Which of the following is comparable to the size of a typical three-car garage? A, a basketball court, B, a McDonald's restaurant, C, an RV, a recreational vehicle, or D, the average home? In the 1950s. D. Many of today's three-car garages actually occupy 900 square feet, just about the average size of an entire home in the 50s. As you know, most folks use it to store stuff, and 
you know, again, you hear reports that Americans have lost ground economically and have less purchasing power, but it's not true. Americans are buying more luxurious items partly by working more and going deeper into debt. There's a price for affluence. It's called complexity. With the more we accumulate and keep for ourselves, the more time, energies, and efforts we have to devote to maintaining them. Actually, kind of cross-religions here. There's, there's an Indian parable about this. Maybe you've heard that. A, a guru had a disciple and was so pleased with the man's spiritual progress that he left him on his own. The man was very poor, lived in like a little mud hut, very simple, had to beg for his food each day. So each morning after his devotions, he would wash his loincloth. He only had a loincloth, that's it, out to hang and dry. But one day he discovered his loincloth was missing. It had been eaten by rats. So he begged the villagers for another, and they gave it to him. But the rats ate that one too. So he got himself a cat that took care of the rats. But now when he begged for his food, he had to beg for milk for his cat as well. He was like, well, that won't do. He thought, I'll get a cow. So he got a cow, and he found now he had to beg for food for the cow. So he decided to till and plant the ground around his hut. But soon he found, I have no more time for contemplation. So he hired servants to tend his farm. But, you know, gosh, overseeing the laborers kind of became a choice. So he married a wife to help him. (laughs) After time, he became the wealthiest man in the village. So his former teacher is walking by and stops in. And he's shocked to see where once stood a simple mud hut. There now loomed a palace surrounded by this vast estate worked by many servants. And he says, what's the meaning of this? And you know what the man replied? You won't believe this, sir, but there was no other way I could keep my loincloth. (laughs) Affluenza is a trap. It's designed to catch us up into living a life of increasing complexity as we have more and more things and possessions to keep us distracted and worry about. This man is rich, but he's not rich enough, he decides. So he has to undertake building projects to store his crops. And the possessions we once owned suddenly begin to own us, don't they? They become a source of anxiety and worry, more to keep track of, to maintain, fix, replace, protect. Look down in your text, by the way. This is, this is, this so captures it. Look down in your text in Luke 12, 22. Right after this parable that Jesus tells, right? What's the next topic that he addresses? What's the subtitle in your Bible? Do not worry. Jesus warns about worry. Look at this. Read with me. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Look at the flowers. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father's been pleased to give you his kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, it's a logical, it's not a non sequitur, not a new topic for Jesus, it's related. When we get caught up in chasing after all this stuff, God gets cut out of the picture. We struggle to live independent of him so we don't have to rely on him in any way. And our minds and energies become directed towards chasing the next thing. And it's no wonder we lose sight of God and then shrink in our concern for the needs of others around us. That's the cost. Worry, anxiety, distraction, and discontent. They're all the side effects of affluenza. What happens when we stay on this treadmill? The final symptom I'd I'd actually like to close with is found in the man's final comment to himself in verse 19. He said to himself, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store up all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things 
laid up for many years. This is verse 19. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Told you, he's American. Perhaps the most telltale sign that you've got the fever is you think leisure, take life easy, and consumption, eat and drink, is the ultimate source of happiness. Be merry in life. Another friend of mine from college and I were, were catching up uh, the other day, and he's into investments and stuff, and, and I'm, I'm woefully ignorant with that. But I, so I asked him how it was going, and he said, actually, it's going awesome, Tim. I mean, you know, I'm busting my butt right now. I am working like, you know, 60 hours a week. But my senior associate told me that I'm on the fast track to, catch this, to retire by 45. And I was like, Retire? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I mean, it won't be full retirement. Don't get the wrong idea. But if I build my portfolio and play my cards right, then I'll be out golfing four days a week and maybe just visit the office for like an hour or so on the 5th. And then he went on to describe how his boss rarely works. It's always golfing or traveling to some exotic locale or beach club and how awesome he thinks it will be when he and his wife can someday just, you know, jet off to Europe or wherever, sample life, fine dining, see the sights. And then I realized this. This is a contemporary of mine. In his mind, the goal was take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the brass ring, the ultimate purpose, to work as hard as possible now so that later it's a life of leisure and consumption. Now, look, I'm all for vacations, hobbies, and travel, but I went away from our lunch just like depressed. My friend is 35, and his goal for life What gives meaning and motivation to his days on earth is the thought of retiring in 10 years. That's what it's become for him. Is there something sad about that? Or is it me? It's very American. We don't even question the image of the good life that we're sold. But is it really the source of true happiness and contentment? Final quiz question. The percentage of Americans calling themselves very happy reached its highest point in what year? 1957, 67, 77, 87. Add 97 to it. Answer A. The number of people who describe themselves as very happy peaked in 1957, and it's declined ever since. So we consume twice and three times as much as we did in the 1950s, and people were actually just as happy and more so when they had less. What would be your uncensored fill-in-the-blank response to the question, if I just had blank, then everything would be perfect? What would it be? For me and my wife, it might be, you know, a bigger home. (laughs) For you, maybe it's, you know, two bedrooms in your apartment instead of one. New car, trip to Europe, less work, new clothes, renovated basement, home theater, I don't know. This is the sobering story that Jesus tells. The man in the middle of this story is not depicted as evil, but as affluent. And his prosperity is his demise. Verse 20 says, God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Fool. The Greek term for fool here, aphron, is a strong one. In this context, it indicates not only stupidity but spiritual bankruptcy. The man had gained the world and lost his soul in the process. He had actually been singled out by God and blessed by him for a purpose but naively assumed he was the end user of the wealth entrusted to him. He's a casualty of affluenza, folks. And so are many of us. Folks, I want to start our series out on this note (laughs) because the topic of money is so loaded for many of us. The church has a long and sad history of bungling this topic and using it in a totally manipulative way to guilt people, or shame folks about finances, all in an attempt to kind of simply funnel their money and stuff to the church. (laughs) Don't load up, you know, don't build bigger barns for yourself, but help build our parking lot. (laughs) This series is not about that. This series 
is about freedom. It is about first exposing many of the distortions and toxic lies that many of us have grown up assuming are true and breaking some of the ruinous patterns of consuming and spending that just shrink and atrophy our soul. God actually has a purpose for money. (laughs) And he loves to give his children things, treasures more precious than anything we've likely imagined. But it first starts with loosening our grip a bit and taking an honest survey of where we're at before we can get into God's plan. We're actually going to look at what the Bible says about stewardship. It's a word that like, I've like, always been like, ooh, I don't know. It's actually a beautiful word and concept in a world that's totally out of control. We're going to get into see what Jesus teaches about giving, which, and it's not just like dutiful tithing, give percent to the church. He says giving should be one of the deepest sources of bubbling up joy in your life. Can you imagine that? It's kind of like reclaiming the topic of sex. It's like it's so laden by guilt and shame with what our world's done to it. But actually in its natural context, it's one of the most beautiful joy-giving experiences. Money is the same. But before we do that, we've got to take stock where we're at. Do a little cultural exegesis and see if we've got the flu. <laughs> I've got a low-grade fever. I told you that. You've seen my trinkets. How about you? What does this opening question in the conversation raise in your heart and mind? When you look at those symptoms of affluenza, all four of them, evidenced by the man in Jesus' parable, do any seem familiar to you? Do you recognize any? I want to invite you to join the conversation this week and post your honest responses or thoughts on our church blog at www.liquidchurch.com. I'm actually hoping this is going to be a, a revolutionary kind of series in the life of our church. And on the other end of it, our lives will actually be turned upside down. Not that the church has more money, but we're more alive, more free, richer towards God. And in love and awakened to the needs of others than ever before. So do that this week, would you? Would you log on, post your thoughts, and join the conversation? All right? That's how we're going to start. Let's pray together, okay? And then we will close. Jesus, um, uncomfortable story, uncomfortable topic, I guess we're in the right place. Lord, you shake us up so that we can be changed. And I want to thank you, um, Lord, for this, this, um, this series. And we just ask that your spirit would, would begin um, doing some major growth work and renovation in our own hearts. Would you do some expanding, Lord, of your property where you live, our hearts? Would you expand them, loosen the grip, Lord, of some of the consumption and patterns we're in? Lord, for some of us, that first step will simply be getting out of debt. Another tough subject. I pray you guide us by your Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. And do it for your kingdom. We want to be rich towards you. I ask that you start with me. In Jesus' name, amen.